0: Welcome to this week's episode of Tech Glass. So I am very excited to have on the show this week, Matt Johnson. Matt is a high school teacher with the ABC School District. He has created and taught one of the first AI courses at the high school level. Matt has a bachelor's in astrophysics from UCLA. He has a master's degree in computer science with an emphasis on artificial intelligence I met Matt at the LICO AI Symposium back in August of 2023. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for being on the podcast. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I see that you've been involved with AI since at least the early 2000s. You know, for a lot of us, we're a lot newer to the topic. What first sparked your interest in artificial intelligence? You know what? Science fiction. Science fiction. I'm a science fiction buff. Um,
1: And it's an interesting thing because a lot of scientists and science teachers aren't really They're They're really more focused on like, let's figure out what we can figure out. Very practical mindset. But for me, I started reading science fiction, you know, before, you know, well before high school. So it's just something that I've always thought about and thought about the future. So AI is first and foremost, something that I saw as this could have a massive impact on society. Um, Which, and I didn't know when it was going to happen,
0: but I thought it could. I, I'm curious myself, what are some of the, can you give any science fiction titles that really uh, sparked your interest? Just in general, some of my favorites from growing up,
1: I really loved Frank Herbert's Dune. Okay. Um, I was heavily inspired by Neil Stevenson with Snow Crash and the Diamond Age. Mm-hmm. Um Isaac Asimov's short stories and stuff. Um, In terms of ones that actually involve artificial intelligence, you got Neuromancer from William Gibson, and then uh, Werner Vinge, who coined the term Mm -hmm. the technological singularity. I found he was really ahead in terms of trying to give us some kind of understanding of what is it like to possibly be in a situation where we have created things that are much more intelligent than us. So a book like his Fire Upon the Deep um, is fascinating both because of the AI involved and because of the alien species. Um, I'm a big fan of authors that go into different species of intelligence because it just makes you think. So um, there is, what's his first name? His last name is Tchaikovsky, but he has his uh, Mm. um, Children of Time series. And he's done stuff with... uh, Um, intelligent spiders and intelligent octopi and intelligent corvids and stuff along those lines, and just anything that helps you get outside of your kind of human provincialism, anything that makes you see things outside of that, I think that's useful and fascinating.
0: Absolutely. I thought you were going to go with, you know, uh, asimov and arthur clark and uh, i think he was in the foundation series where they talked about psych i think it's called psychohistory, where yep, yep. they can predict with uh, mathematical precision people's behavior and uh whoever thought that would <laughs> that would be prophetic it's, it's pretty amazing
1: so. um yeah i definitely i i love the foundation series and asimov i mean he had so many ideas and i you know um i read him and have my students read him in the class Um, Another contemporary is Stanislaw um, Lem, um, who's done a lot of things with uh, thinking about AI and stuff. Um, Arthur C. Clarke is great. Robert Heinlein from the time. Yeah. Um, So many of these authors have expanded my mind.
0: Right. Right one one that just popped into my head that i recommend to teachers of all grades is a ray bradbury story called the velt are, are you familiar with this one uh, i don't know that one but i love ray bradbury it's it's uh, it was written i believe in 1950 and it's unbelievably prophetic it's about two kids who are addicted to their, their virtual reality environment and their parents want them to to you know to go outside and do something and it has uh, quite a shocking uh, uh, i'll i'll have to
1: I'll have to find that one because that
0: does seem yeah it's awfully uh so good pathetic yeah yeah b e b e l d t for those of you who want to look that up who are listening uh, now one of the things that i've been we're both interested in computer science and AI and teaching students you know not only teaching with AI but teaching about AI and how do you think that learning computer science or do you think that help learning computer science and helps students understand generative ai
1: well i don't think there's any doubt that it helps i mean we have implemented generative ai with computers so you're not going to have a complete understanding of generative ai without a computer science background so it, it, to me it goes without saying that yes we we want to have them have a stronger computer science background to understand this stuff but I also think that when understanding generative AI, the thing to harken back to, probably more than anything else, is just our own brains, which has also been kind of an obsession of mine for a long time. When it comes to being generative, that's what you and I are doing right now. Right now, somehow, stuff is percolating up my subconscious, out my mouth, right? Saying words things come to mind. And for the most part, you just don't even think about it. Every once in a while, something pops to your mouth and you think, no, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) Right? Something along those lines. Or sometimes, it pops out of your mouth and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that or something along those lines. But that's that's the generative process. And we now have tools with artificial intelligence after a long time of not having these tools um, that do a pretty dang good job of it. And it's... I mean, it's throwing us all for a loop Um, just from the perspective of, you know, this was kind of supposed to be something that, you know, I mean, until we get artificial general intelligence, something that's like just clearly like us, but smarter, like this was supposed to be kind of like the last realm of things, like we're going to be able to do all these other things first. But, you know, the the human creativity, like that's Mm. not something that we're going to be able to. Have AIs do anytime soon. And lo and behold, it is this generative aspect of us. This is something that we've been able to get artificial intelligence to do at this point. And I think that the computer science is important, the brain science is important. But I think there's also just a, you know, something for the students to understand from a productivity perspective. You know, when you are stuck on something. You can now use these tools to help you with the process. I'll I'll go on a brief tangent here. This getting stuck on generating, getting stuck on ideas and thinking and stuff. This is something I actually talk about a lot with my AP Physics class. Because, you know, in physics, we talk about this idea of intuition. And I've talked to physics professors asking, how do you teach intuition? And they say, well, it can't be taught. Some people just have it. And the reality is my perspective is your subconscious, if I show you part of a problem that you can't solve, your subconscious is trying to give you ideas of the topics that are coming to mind. It's not saying rutabaga, right? And it's true for every single human. If nothing's coming to mind, it's because it's blocked. And it's not blocked because you're dumb. It's blocked because you're thinking about other things like, oh my God, what if I can't do well on this test? It's blocked by the big brain problems of testings. So I want students to get better at this. And I, I, I try to train them on examples and get them thinking about intuition and cognitive salience and things. But I also think there's a matter of, you know, I when I'm writing a, a multiple choice test, which I don't really like doing, I try to avoid right. it. But I still give them um, in certain occasions. I hate coming up with the wrong answers. Right. 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 That's the part that's so annoying about multiple choice. Right. So it ends up being kind of an anxiety prone process. And if I can smooth myself over to the editor and basically be like, OK, chat, you come up with this stuff and then be like, "Nope, no, do it like this. Nope, do it like this. And if I have enough problems with it, then I'm like, ah, it's not doing this. OK, I just need to do this. Right. It actually makes the entire process less anxious for me which helps my generative capacity. So that's a series of tangents on that. But suffice to say, computer science, important part, but it's more than just understanding computer science to get a sense of what's going on.
0: And getting back to the multiple choice questions with ChatGPT, I'm thinking that process of iterating helps you or us clarify what it is that we want, what our goals are, because we, we can, in a general way, we may not spell things out in our minds exactly what we want but we see oh that doesn't work or that doesn't work it makes you think okay now i know what doesn't work and what i what i don't want helps me know what i what i do want and i'll just
1: piggyback on that i think that's a really good point point. and you know the reality is if you do that to another person right it's frustrating for that person right. like no, no 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 make it snappier <laughs> right that type of thing like But with uh, ChatGPT, it's just always like, certainly, you know, got that positive attitude. (laughs) So I'll I'll iterate many, many times. And if I start getting frustrated with the iteration, to me, that's a signal of like, okay, really, like this other thing that's coming to mind to me, this is what I should just do because I can't get the machine to do that. But yeah, this process of using it, not just because it can do things that you can't, but to actually reduce your anxiety in the process. I think is
0: a useful thing too. Wow. Fascinating. I also want to swing back to the cognitive science connection. I know that knowing about, let's say the neuron that has input processing and output informs computer science, but I'm also interested in kind of going the other way. And how do we teach students about our own psychology how we think and how that interconnection because we think of ourselves as very separate from all this media but it's really important and profound so i'd like to get your take on that about informing psychology with computer science
1: well so i'm uh i'm kind of, of that cognitive science stripe which is kind of emerged out of psychology but then there's a little bit of a battle that sometimes goes on between the two um I, I would say that, you know, um, I'm big on cognitive science and I'm big on neuroscience. And I, I took a, a lot of these courses as part of my AI education just because I thought that emulating the brain was the most interesting part. I think, you know, we teach AP psychology and perfectly fine class. But it's also something where, depending on the teacher, you're talking about some old school ideas that are very top down. Right. I mean, when you start. Uh, you go back deep into psychology with Freud and stuff. He's coming up with theories to explain things without having any sense of the inner workings on stuff. Right. And so I really like the use of artificial neural networks um, in my AI class, not just because it's a good AI technique, but because their brain is made up of neurons. right? And there's all sorts of identities that they have that are really top down. And top-down identities don't tend to hold up um, when like, something new emerges. But if you think about everything in terms of, no, this is what your brain is made of. And I mean, there's obviously cells in your brain that are not technically neurons, but they are part of the support structure around the neurons. So if, if people can understand how neurons work um, and the basic essence of them, it helps them with artificial intelligence now. But I think it also helps them understand, like, what's actually going on in your brain? Right. What are these connections that we're, we're making that are changing how we view things? I mean, a, a classic example of this is. Why is history class so boring when you're young? And then later on, we're all fascinated by That's history. That's a great question. Yeah, right. It's not because the the teachers are terrible. It's because if you don't have a frame of reference for this stuff and you're just kind of getting exposed to it for the first time um, and you're doing so in a place that maybe you're stressed out about, right? It's a force feed, right? But as you live more, you experience more, you see more people, you start paying attention to politics and other things in society, you start drawing analogies. So, you know, the idea of studying the past to understand the future, I'm a big believer in that. And I try to make my, my AI students think about the industrial revolution and think about these other things because I want them to see the arcs of technological progress going forward. Um, so I think that, you know, I, one of my friends who um, uh, is working in the AI space, he had a quote that I loved. He said, The older I get, the more I get, right? Mm-hmm. By which he meant, the older I get, the more I see the value in things that I didn't understand before, right? We know that in a lot of ways, every day we're becoming poorer learners, right? My students are amazing and they're better at learning than me right now, but they're teenagers, which means they're past their prime in terms of learning new languages, right? That's right. That's kind of depressing. But on the other hand, you go into a more social domain of things along those lines. And I find that a lot of times adults are able to be like, oh, yeah, so that's kind of like this. So this is going to happen and this is going to happen, right? And the younger people, they have no context of this. So it's uh, it kind of gets into just understanding the power of knowing things that are kind of like other things, the power of analogy and metaphor and
0: stuff. Right, I mean. Yeah, I, I think the psychology piece is huge. One of the things I wonder about, too, is if you know, let's say you know about cognitive biases and certain uh, kind of psychological traits, does yes. that support us, you know, and see, OK, here's how YouTube is trying to hook me. Here's how social media is trying to keep me engaged or Netflix, for that matter. And I uh, I wonder if that if that helps with kind of that media balance piece uh, as well.
1: I, I think it's going to be critical, and I think it's, you know, within the, uh, the computer science education community, you know, there's kind of this push-pull in terms of AIs and relationship in it, you know, because it's implemented on computers, so it should just be a subpart of computer science. Okay, but while I want really young kids to be exposed to computer science, even the kids who have no interest in it and are never going to do anything more in it, they're still going to be subject to these algorithms. Right? Right? So they need to be forearmed. Right? So this is the type of awareness we need to be giving them. And it's not one of these things like we can wait until um, secondary school, because they're online before that. So we need to teach this stuff at the youngest levels. And that's an intimidating thing to pull off. Because all of the language we have about this stuff is full of really big abstract words. Right, I mean, we're going to be teaching, you know, you know, cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, epistemology. blah. blah, blah. you're going to teach that to a second grader? Right. Um, the problems with that are obvious, but that doesn't mean we can give up. We have to find a way.
0: Right, and one of the things, and I'll be interested in your take on this as a computer science teacher, but especially at the high school level. Typically, students either take computer science or they don't. It's kind of an all or nothing and things are not integrated into content. And I think especially if we want to get computer science for younger students, we're going to need to not really have it as this kind of separate thing, but woven into, you know, cor- you know just as a part of literacy, just expanding the idea of what literacy means. And do you have any ideas about how we can really kind of support that, especially at the younger grades? Well, I think that the direction that I'm seeing things like that
1: they need to go on this is um, we need to have ready online curricula. Um, So on the elementary level, and that's where I'm thinking about a lot of this stuff most, you cannot expect to have a teacher in the classroom or even at every school who is really savvy with this stuff at this time. If we do a good job of uh, addressing these things now, then in future generations, that particular thing won't be a problem. But as technology evolves, something new is always going to be a problem. So how I tend to see it as is if we have an online um, tool set and online courses and stuff students can go to, um, then you can carve out periods of time in elementary school where it's like, okay, we want it to be this percentage of time spent on this type of thing. And we give the teachers the support to be like, okay, so here's what it's going to be like. We don't expect you to be the expert at this thing. We want you to get them started on it. We want to give you time. And then we want you to be the adult in the room to make sure that they're not just goofing off. I think that you're going to want to have other resources beyond that. Um, So in my school district right now, we currently have free access to Code Academy Pro. Um, And that's something that hasn't really been rolled out to everybody yet. But what I would like to see happen is let's get it rolled out and then let's get high school students as volunteers to go down to the elementary school and get the kids started on stuff. Um, I mean, there's a lot of details to figure out, but I do think there's just this fundamental thing of we can get the content in front of the students but we cannot expect the teachers to be the ones who teach it. So we want to get that content in front of the students. And then we need to think about what kind of problems the students are having with that or going to have along these lines. The student that gets exposed to something that is beyond their readiness will have a tendency to just give up. So right. it's really important that we have stuff at the very beginner level and that we get them going with enthusiasm and that we get them time to work independently, in class, productively. And computer science is where I tend to think this is going to be happening and stuff. But to me, it's a much bigger issue than computer science. um, Because in the age of the internet, it's very difficult for people to stay on task. Right, That they're going to need to get better at these kinds of skills, to deal with the level of distraction that you and I did not have when we were going, right? It's just this thing of like, your work is in the same place as your play. So how do you police yourself? Well, we have to help them build up skills. And of course, if they really don't want to do the work, that's gonna be harder. So we wanna make it a process that feels good. If it just feels like a thing where you're not good enough, well, then you're going to want to escape to your favorite
0: game. yeah. Yeah, And what I think I hear you saying is, yes, we we must train teachers in computer science and computer science education. But we know that's we know all the challenges associated with that is that we should kind of offload some of that expertise and not put all that the, the requirement for expertise on the teacher and bring it from elsewhere with online courses or you mentioned, you know, high school students or or, you know, industry, those kinds of things. Is is that is that pretty much what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I have to address this quote. I read there was a an article that summarized, uh, interviewed you and summarized your presentation that you did at ISTE. I don't know if it was last year or the year before. it but... was 2019. 20, oh, no, 2019. Okay. I yeah. was 13. Here's the quote. I don't want to send a bunch of whiz kids out there who don't understand the repercussions for society of what they're doing. How do you teach computer science in context and including ethics? And why is it important?
1: Well, I think I'll start with the, the why it's important. And okay. in some ways, people might just think, well, duh, it's important. Right. But before I was a teacher, I was out there working in the tech space and stuff. And my experience working with a lot of people in that is you're talking about a bunch of whip smart people who they were identified as being whip smart. They went through their college computer science degree. They go, they get high paying jobs and stuff along those lines. But in a, like a workspace, they don't really have the experience to be good at empathy for the people who are being affected about things. It's, hard to empathize with people whose experiences are way different from yours, right? If you were identified as having talent and pushed in a certain direction that you enjoyed and you worked hard and you saw some of your peers just goofing around, it's kind of easy to have a mindset of like, well, I mean, they kind of have it coming, right? right? But the reality is, is that when things don't go well for you in your career and you're in some job that doesn't seem to have any kind of future. It's very difficult to keep up that work ethic, stay professional, things along those lines. Um, I've just seen a lot of, you know, 20-somethings who are kind of like, well, what's their problem? You know, and again, these are not people who are fundamentally bad people, right? But what they are is people who have not had a particular type of struggle. And so they don't understand the struggle of everybody else. And in a society If 90% of the people are fine, but 10% are really struggling, it's going to end up hurting the other 90% in some way, shape, or form. And of course, the people I was working with, they're not part of a 90% group, right? I mean, it's very, very high academic achievers and stuff along those lines. They were always unusual within their peer group. Maybe they didn't fit in so well with their peer group. Um, And so I think about helping people like that have a better mindset. But then I also think about, you know, the class of people who, you know, they go and start a massive startup company that like now has hundreds of millions of users and them trying to think about what are the effects that we're actually having? What are the downstream things? What are the things that we're not expecting? They don't necessarily have any basis for thinking in these terms. I know I didn't get any kind of education like that in my Um, undergraduate degree. Um, And now granted that was astrophysics, but I was taking plenty of computer science classes and stuff too. So I just think that they need it and it should be expected that they need it. Now, in terms of what I do in the class, my focus has been on the concept of disruptive innovation first and foremost. So disruptive innovation, disruption in our general life is not considered to be a good thing. But in the tech space, it's become something that is, you know, venerated, a kind of move fast and break things approach. It's like, okay, when you break things, there are consequences. Let's look at what those consequences are. That doesn't mean that we never do things with technology, but we should have a sense of these type of things so as to not have unexpected consequences that cause damage and undermine what we're trying to do. And so, I start things off with something I literally just call the Disruptive Innovation Project. And I have a, a three point focus that is based on the innovations, the uh, industry, and the people involved. But part of what I do to really get my students immersed in it is the very first thing we do, we read the story of John Henry. Um, and to just go a little bit on John Henry, this is um, an American folk hero who works on railroads, and there is a story of somebody coming along and saying, hey, I have a machine that can do this better than any of your workers, so you're not going to need the workers anymore. And I'll refrain from going into all the details and stuff, but I have the students read this, right? And there's a lot of aspects to it. One aspect of it is that John Henry is a former slave. He is Black, right? But beyond that, what we're thinking about is, how does this connect to AI, well it connects to ai because it's about automation and the realization that a lot of this stuff that we're talking about now it has its roots in the industrial revolution it has its roots when we started getting cultures of extreme innovation and again i love innovation but in other times in history history we haven't necessarily been encouraged to be innovative i mean People were starting to come up with industrial revolution type of um, devices earlier than, than the industrial revolution, and they were getting shouted down. Right? How dare you do that? You're taking work away from people. So it's not just like oh, and it, there was this inevitable progress. No, like things got shut down. Authorities shut them down, saying like no, you can't take that away from my people. We switched to a time where we are embracing the innovation. And then we utterly transform the world. And it's amazing. But have people been hurt? Yes. Every single time there is a major innovation. There's always going to be certain things where the people get hurt. Now, maybe those things are very minor in a certain circumstance. But if you're not looking for them, you probably won't see them. And if you do see them, you may not make the connection. So I'm trying to give them a framework for seeing these things. So we do a couple projects along these lines, the projects themselves, they choose what they focus on. And then we also read articles in class and have discussions just trying to understand what's going on, perhaps understand the specific algorithms involved in the computer science, but also trying to understand like, okay, how does this affect the citizenry?
0: Wow, that is that is absolutely great. And we're looking to personalize it for students because this is not a one-size-fits-all model and the technology really empowers us to prove equity in computer science and education because this is one way to address what you're talking about to, to personalize content more. Do you have any thoughts about how we might personalize computer science education? I am
1: increasingly killing off the stuff that I've developed myself and replacing it with like sites like Code Academy or Elements of AI or other things along those lines. So there's certain courses I let them know, I'm like, okay, we're gonna do this together. And then I have them, okay, I want you to go through Code Academy or other stuff. And I want you to scout it. I want you to see what you're interested in. I want you to get a sense of the difficulty level and what the prerequisites are. And then I want you to tell me, if you get done with these other things early, and if you're one of the more advanced students, I fully expect that you will. What's she going to be working on? There should never be a time where you have nothing to do. So that's what I do with my advanced high schoolers. And of course, working with elementary school students, it's it's different. There's a lot more fundamentals that you have to teach them that go beyond this. And we'll definitely want to be consulting elementary school teachers on, you know, just the temperament of students along these lines. Right. right. Um, but I think that personalization. Um, is going to be great for giving people what they need to grow from where they are. You know, that zone of proximal growth, which is to me what the essence of equity really is. So a student is in a given place. How do we get them into the next place? And when it comes time for them to decide, how do we make sure that they can keep zooming off on their own in their chosen place and that they don't get
0: stuck? Swinging back around to teachers, what do you see as some of the best uses of generative AI for teachers?
1: What are teachers using for their own work and then how are they using it for the students? So for their own work, I would say it's whatever makes it easier for them. I mean, we can we can talk about um, helping the teachers be more creative, but I would say on the whole teachers are kind of forced to be creative right? Unless you're using somebody else's curriculum to the letter, you're having to think about the lessons that you're given. You're having to like, think about how it's not quite working in a particular way and you have to adjust it. So I actually think there's no shortage of creativity on the teacher side of things. I just think if we can make things easier for them and maybe expand some certain types of like modalities in terms of the, like what you could possibly use for a lesson along the way. You know, I mean, traditionally, you're talking about, you know, going up to the chalkboard, right? And you're, you're doing stuff that way. Um, and then we branch out and we have the students do more things. But you're still talking about stuff that is writing oriented or basic drawing oriented. The capability of creating videos and not just videos of you talking. But, hmm. Can we demonstrate this and having an AI do something along those lines? I think that's going to be powerful. On the student side of things, what I tend to focus on is we get to jump up Bloom's taxonomy. right? So We spend so much time on the lower levels of this, of just the basic comprehension, that we don't spend a lot of time on the creative or the evaluative in a lot of these circumstances. It's not that we're fundamentally opposed to doing this. But standards are generally written at these kind of lower levels, Hmm. because those are the things that are easiest to assess, particularly when you're talking about things where there's clear cut answer choices. Right. So it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you teach the class and there is a range of student performance and you're kind of deciding where to go from there. And it's not easy to be like, okay, I think that's good enough for everybody. Now let's go into something that's a little bit more loosey-goosey. Um, and like from an English teacher perspective, and my wife's an English teacher, mm. you're talking about things like process papers. Process papers where, okay, maybe you have the students start in class and then we're going to work on it more and we're going to work on it more and we're going to review each other's things and we're going to go together. They, they take so long. And it's so easy to cheat with these things. Right. So you end up with these, you know, bit size writing assignments that can be done in class and they're not useless, but the reality is, is nobody really cares how long it took James Joyce to write Ulysses, right? Right. It's not a speed thing. So the thing is, is that you can start having assignments tailored toward, okay, here's what we want you to write on. Start off by getting ChatGPT or whatever to write a rough draft. And then what do you think about it? And when we talk about critical thinking, I think something that's sad in general, but but cool in terms of where we are right now is students who lack the confidence to really paint outside the lines, it's very hard to get them to critical think because they've been experienced trying to do that and kind of getting slapped down, like it didn't work out for them. If it works out for you, you keep doing it. But some students basically learn to just stay within the lines. And so they've become gun shy in general. But from what I have been seeing from students and hearing in some of the studies out, when you use these generative AI things to produce stuff, the students naturally turn into editors. They're like, ah, I don't like that. That doesn't, that sounds generic. I want to change this. And you add into that, like, you need to make it sound like you. Right. right. You need to give it style. How do you sound? Right. It allows them to focus on things that they weren't able to focus on before. Right. It's a little bit of a Maslow's hierarchy, you know, self-actualization possibility. Instead of focusing on these fundamentals, we can focus on more advanced things. Now there's trepidation about losing the fundamentals, and understandably so. Um, and we're gonna do what we can not to lose those fundamentals, but there is also a truth that when we do innovate, we do tend to lose those fundamentals. I I mean, the average human being's memory right now is much worse than it was before we invented writing. And the ancient Greeks were on the fence about the effects of writing. Like we're going to lose our memory. They were, they were right.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's so much more extreme. Like if we had met when we were kids and you told me your phone number, (laughs) I would have it in there. Yes. Like I wouldn't have to write it down. I wouldn't have to ask you it again. It's just, there was like, a whole database in my head for phone numbers um and if you told me your phone number now i would forget it instantly the Absolutely. only hope i would have would be to put it in my phone right. does that mean i'm less capable than i used to be in some ways right is the trade-off worth it um
0: i think by and large it is and what could you and if it wasn't what could you do <laughs> anyway well that's um,
1: also one of the things is some of the things we have a tendency to get into philosophical hand-wringing on, we don't actually have the ability to stop. Right. You know. Right. Well, why don't we just do a pause and, and do what? Right. Like, how are you stopping pe- other people from doing these things? It's going to happen. So we should be proactive about it. And we should make sure that we have what's actually happening aligns with what we think is actually wisest for us, our local communities, and humanity as a whole.
0: Right. And the challenge is the companies, the incentives are not for that. The incentives are, you know, yep. uh, money and, and shareholders and those kinds of things. So hopefully you, we can, uh, you know, maybe it's regulation or uh, I don't, don't know what the answer is, but I think this is part of what we're all working towards. You talked about alignment with our values. And and I think that's that's kind
1: that's, of that's kind of the word of the hour right now is alignment. Aligned, and yeah, it's the that alignment. way in artificial intelligence, but it's a lot bigger than artificial intelligence,
0: too. With all these challenges that we're talking about, one group we haven't talked about yet is parents. And I know for years, parents, this has been an ongoing issue for years where students tend to have more knowledge about technology than their parents. And now this is really going to be exacerbated with generative AI. What do you see as a way for those of us in education to support parents during this time?
1: My thought in general is keep keep it simple in terms of what are we really focused on? So I would tend to say, focus on skill building, right? Whatever it is that the student is doing, how are you gaining skill from it? And so the perspective of don't use ChatGPT to cheat because you're not really gaining subsequent skills. I mean, good, get good with ChatGPT. But if you're supposed to be learning a particular skill and you're not, that's a missed opportunity. I mean, I, I tell my students every day, I wish I was more capable than I am. Like, it's a frustration that I can't do the things that I want to do. If you have a sense for what you want to do or things that you want to achieve and stuff along those lines, right, you're naturally going to have a tendency to build up the skills that you need. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of parents successfully getting the students to be thinking first and foremost about a skill mindset, that's going to be hit and miss, you know? But if the parents can just focus on that more so than say, well, They're going to get into the best college possible, right? That type of thing. I understand the temptation for those things, but the reality is, is some people are able to, with the help of academies and stuff outside of the public education space, get better SAT scores and get this and get that. And they're still not really able to function on their own. Mm -hmm. So you want your students to be gaining skill. You want them to be able to function in autonomy. And so I think to some degree, what we're talking about is regularly talking with your child about the things that they're learning. And every child hates that.
0: Right.
1: But if you do it on the regular and you try to make it a like a positive thing, and they just get used to thinking in those terms, I think that there will be a lot of payoff. Right. If, on the other hand, you go with a more punitive approach to parenting and education, then you're going to end up incentivizing behavior that is not good for the long term. Right. So, focus on the skills, focus on goals and how you're going to do these things. Try to take joy in the education process like that. And I think that's a good start. Now, that you go into secondary school and you're taking APs and stuff, it's hard to keep everything joyful. You know, and I think as adults, it's hard to keep everything joyful. But if you can get them the right foundation at the starting point, that really, really helps later on in life. And that includes going from elementary school to secondary
0: school. Right, right. We recently had—I don't know if you know—Dr. Mike Carlin from uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills. He's a computer science instructor who does a lot of teacher PD. He has an article entitled "Bringing the Joy to Computer Science," and it really goes back to what you were talking about earlier—is making it relevant for students, making them, you know, making them see themselves as, you know, empowering them with with certain skills to make a difference in the world. And and I see your work as helping high school students and others moving in that direction. And I think that's wonderful. I hope we can continue to keep doing that kind of work.
1: I I thank you for your kind words, Scott. It's, uh, you know, it's a challenging process with all of this. All of us, even those of us who are super excited are kind of like, wow, this is a lot. Yeah. Right. I don't have all the tools that I want to be able to do what I want with the students at this time. So I struggle with it. There's, There's things where I can talk about the theoretical answers to, but it doesn't exist right now. And it's hard. It's hard for us all. But yeah, if we can focus on trying to find the joy in these situations and always looking to find what's most relevant to the students, I think that gives
0: us the best shot. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on than that, bringing the joy to computer science and to education. I want to thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed it. I think our listeners will, too. Any uh, final words you'd like to say?
1: Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you to you and to LACO for really looking to tackle these things head on. The, there's a rising tide of people thinking about these problems, trying to do stuff with it. And I think that's exactly
0: what we need. So thank you. The ITO coordinators, thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Lasso. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Also, follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes. Thank you again and let us know how we are doing. Go to bit.ly/techlasso